Looks like we have a good number of present. We appreciate the presence of everyone. We have visitors. We're glad that you've come. Hope you can come back and be with us again. This evening we'll be studying in, at 5.30 from Romans the 6th chapter. And so if you have a chance to read Romans chapter 6, we'll be doing a textual study of Romans chapter 6, 5.30 this evening. If you're turning in your Bibles to Matthew the 26th chapter, we're going to begin by looking at some things in Matthew chapter 26. Our speech often does not match our claims. And what I mean by that, we often make a claim of one thing, but then when we begin to talk, our speech says something just the opposite. In Matthew chapter 26, Peter claimed he did not know the Lord. This is at the trial of Jesus. Peter had been following at a distance, according to verse 58. When someone asked him, was he also with Jesus of Galilee, verse 69, he denied it and said, I do not know what you're saying. And in verse 71, the text says that they said, this fellow also was with Jesus of Nazareth. And then he again denied it, saying, I don't know the man. His claim was, I do not know Jesus. I'm not one of his, I'm not with him, I'm not with this crowd of people that were with him. And yet his speech betrayed him. Look at verse 73. And a little later, those who stood by came up and said to Peter, Surely you are one of them, for your speech betrays you. Here's why we think you're with him. You say you're not, but your speech betrays you. Now by his speech, it's talking about his accent. That's evident from Mark and Luke's account, particularly Mark's account, and the footnote in Mark's account suggests it was his accent. that he talk like all those other Galileans that were there that were disciples of the Lord? You're like these other Galileans. You talk like the other Galileans. And what I'm seeing in that was that his claim and his speech did not match. He made one claim, though it was a false claim, and his speech was entirely different. And so they didn't match, and thus they said, your speech betrays you. I want to suggest to you, the same could be true of us. Now, our claim may be right, and our claim may be in harmony with the will of God. We may be making claims of being what's right, but our speech may say otherwise that we're not in harmony with our claim. Now, when we talk about our speech, we're not talking about our accent, that we talk like those Galileans, or we talk like the Northerners, or we talk like the Southerners. But we're talking about the words and the language that we use. In other words, sometimes we speak the language of Ashdod. Turn over the book of Nehemiah just for a moment, if you will. In Nehemiah chapter 13, the text talks about the language that the children of Judah, those of Judah talked, the kind of language they used. But what I want you to notice is the contrast. Look at verse 24. And half of the children spoke the language of Ashdod and could not speak the language of Judah, but spoke according to the language of one or the other people. In other words, there were some who were speaking a language that the others didn't understand. It wasn't their jargon. It wasn't their terminology. And often we speak the language of Ashdod. In other words, rather than speaking in harmony with what we claim to be true, 
We use terminology that may be just the opposite in our speech, therefore betrays us. Now, our words are a reflection of the heart. Let's go to Matthew chapter 12, if you will. In our class this morning, we talked about Jesus responding to the charge that he was casting out demons by the power of demons. And we made the point Jesus gave three responses to that, two of which are recorded in Mark, and here's the third. And one of the points that Jesus is making is that when one man speaks, he speaks forth from his heart. And since you're saying evil things, that says you have an evil heart. Let's begin at verse 33. Either make the tree good in its fruit or else make the tree bad and, and uh, the, its fruit is bad and a tree is known by its fruit. Now look at verse 35. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things. And an evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. Now notice the connection at verse 36. Every idle word that a man shall speak, he shall give an account thereof in the day of judgment. Do you see the connection? Jesus said, what comes forth from the heart, if it has a good heart, good things come forth. If it's an evil heart, evil things come forth. He's talking in this context, you're saying evil things, that means you have an evil heart. But he immediately connects that with our words in verse 36 and 37. So here's what I'm learning from that, that our words are a reflection of the heart. Their words, when they said, you cast out by the power of devils, means they're saying evil things, that means they have an evil heart. The words that we utter are a reflection of our heart, no matter what we might claim. In other words, I might make a claim that's good, but my words are a reflection of my real thinking and the real person. Now, when we talk, we can't hide who we are. Let's go to the book of Ecclesiastes, if you will. Ecclesiastes 10, and then we'll drop back to Proverbs. When we begin to speak, we can't hide who we are. In other words, if I claim to be highly educated... When I begin to speak, I may show I'm not educated at all. Or maybe we claim to be dumb and we don't know anything because we don't want people to know we know anything. And when we begin to talk, we may reveal that we know more than we are pretending to know. Same thing here. Ecclesiastes chapter 10, if you will, and in verse 3. Even when a fool walks along the way, he lacks wisdom and he shows everyone that he is a fool. You see, when a fool begins to talk, turn to Proverbs 17 as, you're, as we're thinking about this. When a fool begins to talk, he reveals exactly who he is. Look at verse 28. Even a fool is counted wise when he holds his peace. Watch the point. When he begins to speak, he, realize, he begins to reveal that indeed he's a fool. Our words are a reflection of our heart. So let's talk a little while this morning about your speech betrays you. Your speech betrays you. And what I want to picture is a number of categories or areas. We'll take four different categories. And here's some areas wherein we make the claim, and the claim may be true and is true. That is, it should be, it's the right claim, in other words. But our speech may be different from what our claim may be. And what our point is, is we need to try to get our speech and our claim together. They need to be in harmony one with another. Let's take the area that the Bible is our guide. Now let's establish the fact that the Bible should be our guide. The Bible is our infallible guide, in fact. It is the inerrant word of God. Let's go to 2 Timothy chapter 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, and for correction and instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped unto every good work. So what I'm learning from this is that the Bible is the God-breathed scriptures. That God breathed these very words. 
That's what our claim is, that we believe the Bible to be the infallible Word of God. Let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 11. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God, the sayings of God. So the Word of God becomes, the Bible becomes the basis for what we believe. Our claim is, we believe what we find written in the book of God. Furthermore, 2 John in verse 9, it is the foundation of all that we practice. That we must abide within the confines of the doctrine of Christ. Whoever abides in the doctrine of Christ, he has both the Father and the Son. The text says. So it is the foundation of all that we practice. So our claim is, the Word of God is the foundation for what we practice. We find book, chapter, and verse for all that we practice. 2 Corinthians 4.13 says that what is written is our standard. The Apostle Paul says, according as it is written, I believe and therefore have I spoken, we also believe and therefore speak. So here is our claim. Our claim is that we believe and we follow the Bible. You may talk to your denominational friends or someone you're inviting to church and you say to them, you see, what we believe is we believe the Bible is our guide and we believe the Bible is our only guide and we believe and we follow the Bible. Now let's go to Luke chapter 1 and establish this principle and that is that there is a difference in believing in God and believing God. We may think because I believe in God and I believe the Bible is the word of God that therefore that means I believe God. There is a big difference and here is an example of that. Let's take the case of Zacharias. This is the father of John the Baptist. And you remember in Luke chapter 1 we're introduced to him according to verse 6 is he was a righteous man before God walking in all his commandments and the ordinances of the Lord blameless. That tells me he believed in God. He believed God to be true. He, in fact, is a priest, and he is at this time, in this context, offering sacrifice before the Lord. I know that he believes in God. But when an angel of God came to him and told him he's going to have a son, and his name would be John, and he'd go in the spirit, of, uh, spirit and the power of Elijah, he began to ask this question. He said at verse 18, I'm an old man, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man, and my wife is well advanced in years. I want you to notice verse 20. Behold, you will be mute, this is God speaking to him, and not able to speak until the days these things take place. Are you reading with me? Because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their own time. Zacharias was a man who believed in God, but he had trouble believing God. You see, his claim and what he says were two different things. And that's what I want us to see. Now, we claim the Bible is our standard, but I want to suggest our speech often betrays our claim. How so? Well, for example, we claim the Bible is our only guide. And we tell our friends and our neighbors the Bible is our only guide. We can't follow the creeds of men. The Bible is our only guide, and we need to follow the Bible. We need to study the Bible and the Bible alone. Then we turn around and we'll appeal to what I think or how I feel or here is the way that it seems to me. Quite often in the midst of controversy, it seems like that what, what ought to be the case or that doesn't seem fair to me and what we're appealing is to what I want, what I like and what seems to be according to me. Let's go to the book of Proverbs, if you will, chapter 3. The proverb writer said in Proverbs chapter 3, 
that we're not to lean upon our own understanding. Look beginning at verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your path. Don't lean on your own understanding. The Roman writer in chapter 11 and in verse 34 said, Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor? Who is wise enough and smart enough to give advice and judgment on God of what seems to be right? I've Speech often betrays our claim. We may claim the Bible is our standard. And this is the standard that we're to follow. We only have one standard, and that's the Bible, the Word of God. And yet we stand with family members who may live contrary to the will of God. That makes them the standard. We've often seen that in divorce and remarriage. You see, what, if what you're saying here is true, and I know what the Lord said, that means my daughter would be living, or my, my uh, son or my aunt would be living in adultery, and I can't accept that. And so what I've just done is I've made my family the standard of what I'm determining to be the truth. He that loveth father and mother more than me, Jesus said, is not worthy of me, Luke chapter 14. That makes them the standard. You see, our speech just betrayed our claim. Here's another claim we make. We claim the Bible to be our guide and our rule. It's the only rule that we are to follow. It is the inspired word of God. And yet we may appeal to some preacher who says that he, we're okay in what we're believing and what we're practicing. Quite often when you begin to question something that someone is doing, maybe question whether or not that's sinful in their life. Well, I know a preacher who's told me that that's okay. I found a preacher who told me that what I'm doing is not in a violation of the word of God. I think I'm okay. And so now what I've done is instead of the Bible being my rule, I've appealed to the preacher and I've just made him the standard. Remember what the Apostle Paul said? We've already noted 2 Corinthians 4, 13. According as it is written, I believe and therefore have I spoken. We also believe and therefore speak. We make the claim that we believe the Bible. And yet we say maybe part of it may not be true. This section of it may not be really the truth. We can't put our confidence in our stock in that section of the word. That may not be true. Our speech betrays us. Or perhaps we say we believe the Bible and yet we raise more questions about the Bible than we give in defense of the Bible. Are you raising more questions about whether the Bible is the Word of God and whether or not it's true than you are in giving defense? You say you believe the Bible to be the Word of God. Do you spend more time defending it as the Word of God? Or do we spend more time raising questions and doubts about the Word of God? Our speech often betrays our claim. Here's something else. We make the claim and we say that unscriptural practices are wrong. And we point to the Bible and we talk about Colossians 3.17, do all things in the name of the Lord. And when a preacher preaches on that, we nod our heads and we say, amen, that's right. Here we're preaching the truth now because we're to do all things in the name of the Lord. And when he camps down on 2 John 9 that we are to abide within the doctrine of Christ, we nod our head and say, that's exactly right. We're to abide within the doctrine of Christ. And we say that's the truth and that is our claim. And then we'll turn around and we'll praise those that are practicing things contrary to the will of God. As being great people, great Christians. Uh, they're doing great things and we praise them while we commended this over here. This is where we stand. We must have Bible authority for all that we do. And then we commend those that are not doing the things that are the will of God. Our speech often betrays us. You see how that works? Let's try that in another category. Quite often we stand for the truth in the sense that we say, here is our claim, this is what we believe, and this is where we stand. 
The same is true with reference to the Lord's church versus human religion. You see, the Lord's church is distinct. Why is it distinct? Well, it was built by the Lord. Jesus said, upon this rock I will build my church. This is his. He built it. Now, if it was a church built by men, I may begin to find fault with it and say that that, that they did some things wrong and it could be improved upon. But this is a church the Lord said that he built. But I'll tell you something else that makes it distinct. There is only one. Let's go to Ephesians 4 and in verse 4, Paul said, there are a number of things of which there is one. He said, there is one Lord. He said, there is one faith. But he also says in that context that there is one spirit. There's only one spirit. There's only one Lord. There's only one faith. There's only one God, he said. But right in the middle of all of that, he said at verse 4, there is one body. Whatever there is, there's only one. What is the body, Paul? Well, let's back up to chapter 1. If you look at verse 22 and 23, he's put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church. Are you reading with me? Which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. What is the body, Paul? He says it's the church. So there is one church. The Lord's church is distinct. There is one body. There is one church. It was built by the Lord. Well, the church is those who are saved. In Acts chapter 2 and in verse 47, the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Those who were being saved were added to the Lord's church. Those in the church were those who were being saved. Further evidence of that is seen in Ephesians 5 and 23. Christ is the Savior of the body. That body is the church. We saw in Ephesians chapter 1, same book, same context. But I want you to also notice with me, Matthew chapter 15 and in verse 13, that if a religion is built by man, it's going to be rooted up. Every tree that my father hath not planted shall be rooted up. And so if I have a religion here, a church that was established by man, founded upon the principles of man, by the teachings of man and the practice of men, God says he'll root that up. And so there is the Lord's church indeed is distinct and we say that's what we believe and we say that's where we stand and me back up just a moment when that kind of principle is preached and taught from this pulpit whether by me or someone in a gospel meeting or some of the men here beginning to preach they stand up and preach those very principles we nod our heads in agreement and we say that's exactly the truth and in fact listen to this carefully if the opposite of that was taught there would be chaos In other words, you would be the very ones, you would be one of the very ones that would stand up and object if someone said there is not just one church. It was not built by the Lord. And if we talked about how there are many different churches and the church and the saved are not the same, you would object to that because that's not the truth. This is where we stand. But I want to tell you that our speech often betrays us. How so? We claim that we believe there is one church. And yet often you hear Christians talk about other denominations. Other denominations. You know what that implies? That implies this church, the Lord's church, the one church you read about in Ephesians 4 is one of many different denominations. And so we talk about people in other denominations. Other denominations? Other denominations? Our speech betrays us. That's the language of Ashdod. That's denominational jargon. Talking about other denominations. Here's something else we do. We claim that we were added to the Lord's church when we obeyed the gospel. Oh, we don't just join the Lord's church. What you do is you obey the gospel and the Lord adds you to the church, Acts 2.47. 
Well, that's preached, we nod our heads and we agree. And then we go off and we tell somebody, when I joined the church, you see, you joined the church. That's denominational jargon again. That's the language of Ashdod. You're speaking a different language. Our speech betrays our understanding of the scriptures. There's something else. We claim that a Christian is one who obeys the gospel and is in the one church. We claim that that's the one who indeed is obeying the gospel. Now I blacked that out so we could go to Acts chapter 6 before we finish that thought. Let's go to Acts chapter, I said Acts 6, Acts 11. We claim we believe that a Christian is one who has been obedient to the gospel and is added to the church. Let's go to Acts chapter 11 and notice the process. Perhaps you have this marked in your Bible from previous studies. I hope you have. That means you were listening then. Let's go to Acts chapter 11. When the gospel came to Antioch, Look at verse 20. Some men who were uh, from Cyprus and Cyrene, who when they came to Antioch, they spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus. You might underline that. You may already have it underlined. Look at verse 21. Upon hearing the preaching of the Lord Jesus, what happened? Verse 21. The hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. They obeyed the gospel, in other words. Upon hearing the preaching of Jesus, they believed and turned to the Lord. These people were converted. Now let's see what happened to them. Well, when the news of this came to the church at Jerusalem, they sent Barnabas they should go as far as Antioch, verse 22. Verse 23, when he came and had seen the grace of God. Now how do you see the grace of God? Well, you don't literally see it, you see the effect of it. He saw that they had received the grace of God. These people who heard the preaching of the Lord and believed and turned to the Lord had received the grace of God. Now notice at verse 24 that when Barnabas, uh, Barnabas, verse 25 rather, Barnabas departed to... Tarsus and went and got Saul. And when he brings Saul back, what does he find? When he had found him, he brought him to Antioch, and so that it was for a whole year, they assembled, here's our word, with the church. I don't remember reading about a church at Antioch prior to this, do you? Remember reading anything about a church at Antioch prior to, to this verse? You won't find a reference anywhere in all the Bible about a church at Antioch prior to this verse. Where did this church come from? This church come from them believing and turning to the Lord, receiving the grace of God. They made up the church at Antioch. Those who obeyed the gospel were in the church. Those in the church were those who obeyed the gospel. What were they called? And the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch, verse 26. See the point? Those who are Christians are those in the church. Those who are Christians are those who are disciples. Those who are in the church are those who believed and turned to the Lord. They're the same people. Now let's go back to our screen. And that is... That our claim is that a Christian is one who obeys the gospel and is in the one church. That's who a Christian is. One who obeyed the gospel and is in the one New Testament church. That's what a Christian is. We make that claim. And yet we turn around and we'll talk about someone in denominationalism that has not obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ, is not in the New Testament church, and we'll talk about how good Christian people they are. Our speech betrays our claim. Oh, he's a good Christian man. Oh, she's a good Christian woman. Uh, where they, oh, no, they don't go to church anywhere, but, no, but they're, they're religious, but they're good Christian man, good Christian woman. They follow good Christian principles. Our speech just betrayed our claim. Here's another category. Home and family. You see, the family and the home can be great when we follow God. There's some basic Bible principles that we all acknowledge. 
claim to be true. For example, Ephesians chapter 5. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. The great degree of love that Christ had for the church, husbands are to have that for their wives. And that's what we want preached. That's what we claim to believe. Husbands, love your wives. That's what we believe the Bible to teach. Husbands are to love their wives. Same context, verse 33, see the wife, let the wife see that she reverences or respects her husband. She is to revere him and hold him up in esteem. And we want that preached. And we claim that to be the truth, and that is the truth. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. We often talk about the husband being the head of the wife. I literally, on purpose, did not put that on the screen because... Sometimes that gives us a misconnotation in our minds, at least as we misdefine that. The emphasis is on the husband being the leader in the family, and the wife is to submit to his leadership. That's the point of 1 Peter chapter 3. So turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter 3 says, Likewise you wives, beginning at verse 1, be submissive to your own husbands, that if they do not obey the word, they may without a word be won by the conduct of the wives. Let's drop down to verse 5. For in this manner in former times, holy women who were trusted in God adorned themselves being submissive to their own husbands. And Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. In other words, he's my leader. That's the point. The husband is the leader. He, the wife, is to submit. The husband, verse 7, the same context, is to be understanding. Dwell with your eyes according to understanding. This is how he leads. This is how he treats her with respect. And he treats her with dignity, and he treats her with honor, and he treats her as an equal, and he holds her up as a vessel that is fragile, treating her as giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel. More about the families found in Ephesians chapter 6, the children are obey their parents and the Lord, for this is right. Those are principles we believe, and we say that's the truth. I don't think there's a principle on the screen that a person present would take issue with. They would walk out of here and say, that is not right. Children are not to obey their parents. Husbands are not to be understanding. The husband is not the leader. The wife is not to respect. And the husband is not to love. Nobody's going to take issue with that. But our speech often betrays our claim. We claim to love our mates. And we say amen to that sermon. And we say we love our husband. We love our wives. And yet we talk to and about them that says otherwise. If the speech that we say publicly to others in a setting like, oh yeah, I love my husband, I love my wife, etc. was heard, then we might say, well, that's true. But what if we could hear how you talk to your husband or talk to your wife at home? What if we could hear about how you talk about your husband or about your wife in the presence of others? Your speech may betray you. When we raise our voices and we scream at our husbands or our wives, our speech betrays us. Oh, I love you. And then we, in the next verse, shout at them and scream out demands. Our speech is betraying us. Peter's speech gave him away. Our speech does the very same thing. We may claim that marriage is honorable, Hebrews 13. We say that's true. Marriage is honorable. God designed it. God planned it. In fact, God said, it's not good that man should be alone. I'll make him my help meet for him. This is a good thing to be married. And yet, we talk of marriage as if it's a plague to avoid. Now, sometimes we say that jokingly. 
And sometimes it's said jokingly with a punch and with a hit. That you need to avoid that at all costs. You don't, need, you don't want to get in this. You don't, want to, it, it, you don't know how great you have it being saved. You just, it's, it's wonderful. You just don't, you don't want to get in this mess. We talk about marriage as bits of play. Our speech betrays us. We claim to be understanding. Oh, I'm an understanding husband. And I try to be understanding of my wife. And I try to dwell with her according to knowledge and understanding. And yet the way we talk to and about our wives, it's more like we're masters or bosses. Do you do that? Do you, are you so fearful of your leadership that you've got to talk to your wife like you're the boss? Like you're the, the master? And that you're going to tell her, I'm the one that makes all the decisions. I'm the one that's in control. And you'll do what I say. Your speech is betraying you of your understanding. You're not the understanding husband that the Bible talks about. We may make a claim to love our children. What a blessing they are. And yet we talk about our children in a way that it seems as if they're a nuisance or a hindrance to, to my objective. If I could only... If I didn't have these children, what I could accomplish. If I didn't have these children in my way to see to, here's what I could do. They're a nuisance. They're a hindrance. Our speech betrays us. When preaching and teaching is done on God's marriage law, God said one man for one woman for life. That's a paraphrase of Genesis 2. It's repeated in Matthew 19 and in in, uh, Ephesians 5. And when that's preached, we commend that and say, that's exactly right. It's almost, I wish I'd have heard that 40 years ago. Wish my children could have heard that. Marriage is for life, with one exception. And so we claim to respect God's law on marriage, and yet we'll commend those who are in unscriptural marriage. Someone gets into marriage that they have no right to be married to, we congratulate them on Facebook. Congratulations, way to go. They just entered an adulterous marriage relationship is what they did. And you congratulated them. Our speech betrays us. Our speech often betrays us. Now let's talk about one last category. Talk about personal godliness. Personal dedication, personal devotion, which we all should have. What does the Bible teach you about that? Well, the Christian life is one of discipleship. It is not a matter of that you join up with a group that claims to be followers of the Lord, and so now you're part of that group. But it's personal discipleship. That's what discipleship is all about. A Christian life is about. In Luke 6, 46, Jesus is our Lord, which means he's our ruler. He said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? The word Lord means ruler. It's not just a title we give him, but it means a ruler. And so to say he's our Lord means he's my ruler. It means I do what he says. So if you say Jesus is the Lord, it means I'm going to do whatever he tells me to do. I'm going to follow his direction. Discipleship means this, that God is first, he's our top priority. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness above everything else. That's in the context of material things, by the way. Of worrying about food and clothing and shelter. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. 1 Peter 3, 15. Sanctify the Lord God in your heart. Put him first and foremost. Bring him first to the top. First and foremost in your life is your relationship to the Lord. Discipleship involves an intimate relationship with God wherein we can go and we can ask and we can receive. The eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, 1 Peter 3.12 says, and his ears are open to their prayers. 
In other words, it's an intimate relationship with God where I can make an appeal to God and he listens and he responds to my prayer. That's discipleship. Here's something else involved in discipleship. It means we are dedicating our lives to serving God. Paul said, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In other words, I'm not living for myself anymore. I'm living for the Lord. I'm now a Christian. I'm now a disciple. I'm his follower. I'm his servant. I'm a servant. I want to serve him. I want to do what he wants me to do. It's not me anymore. I'm not living for myself. I'm living for the Lord, he said. And in fact, let's turn to Luke chapter 14. Discipleship means that I'm willing to forsake all, everything I have. I'm willing to forsake everything I have in order to follow the Lord. Look at verse 26 of Luke 14. If anyone desires to come after me, let him hate his father and mother. That means despise. Parallel account, by the way, Matthew 10 says, He that loveth father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. Verse 27, that we need to take up the cross and come after him to be his disciple. Dropping down in interest of time to verse 33. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all cannot be my disciple. Talking in the context of disciple. What does it mean to be a disciple? It means forsaking everything. Leaving everything behind. Remember the first disciples that were called Luke 5? They left their boat. They left their business. They left their family to follow the Lord. Discipleship means I'm willing to forsake everything there is. But often our speech betrays our claim. We say, you know what? I'm a disciple of the Lord. And Jesus is the Lord. He is my Lord. And yet we talk about what I want. And my happiness. You see, if I follow this direction, then that, I don't see how I can be happy doing that. And so I'm, I'm interested in my happiness. And I want to be happy. That's saying, I want to serve self rather than serving the Lord. Our speech often betrayed. Here's another. We claim to believe in prayer. And if I were to preach that prayer doesn't do any good, prayer doesn't affect anything, you can pray and pray all you want, but it ain't going to do any good, there'd be an uproar. There'd be an uproar. And yet we can preach about prayer and we say, that's right. That's right. Amen. We believe in the power of prayer. And then we often say that things we pray about will never happen. Couldn't happen. Why were you praying for it then? Why were you praying? Our speech often betrays us. Here's another area. We claim to love the Lord. Oh, I love the Lord. I love the Lord and I put him first in my life. He's, he's first and foremost in my life. And then we turn right around and we'll ask the question, do I have to, do I have to attend more than what I am? Do I have to be involved any more than what I am? Now the Lord's first, I hadn't forgotten the Lord. The Lord's important to me, I love the Lord now, don't get me wrong. But do I have to? Our speech just betrayed us. We claim to make a stand for modesty. And yet we commend those that are inappropriate. Someone puts a picture up that's inappropriate on Facebook and we'll hit like. I'll like it. We may even tell them, you look good. That's your color. 
Right on, you look good. But we took our stand. Our speech just betrayed us, is what it did. We may claim that God is first in our lives, and yet we'll tell of other plans that we know are going to hinder us. Oh, the Lord's first in my life, but now I'm not going to be here tonight because I've got plans with, here's why I'm not going to be here. What we've been trying to establish is that often our speech betrays us. It did with Peter. Now, we're not through. I want to go back to the context before we're through. But here are some areas wherein we make the claim the Bible is our guide, and yet the way we talk often betrays that. Or we'll make the claim the Lord's church is not the human religion, and human religions are not the Lord's church, and yet our speech betrays us. And we'll claim that the family and the home needs to be as God directs, and yet our speech betrays us. And the same thing with personal godliness. Let's go back to the context. In the context, here's what was really happening. In the context, the claim was that Peter was not a disciple of the Lord. We've been talking about claiming to be a disciple, and our speech betrays us. But in the context, Peter was claiming he was not a disciple of the Lord. But his speech revealed that he was. Now that's interesting to me. Suppose for a moment, someone is charging that you're not a disciple. Suppose two other people are talking about you. And one says to the other, he or she is not a disciple of the Lord. They're not a Christian. They're not a member of the Lord's church. They're not, they're not that at all. I know they're not. Would others be able to say, just listen to the way they talk. Their speech betrays them and shows that indeed they are a disciple. Is there enough evidence in your terminology, your language? the things you talk about, the subject matters you discuss, what you say about those subject matters that would lead others to say, he is a disciple, she is a disciple. Listen to the way they talk. They're talking just like what I read in the Bible. They're talking just like what I heard the Lord say. They're talking just like Peter wrote and Paul wrote and James wrote. They're using Bible things and Bible terminology. Would there be enough evidence for someone to say their speech betrays them? They are a disciple. Surely they are a disciple of the Lord. Well, our speech and our claim need to match. And that's the point of our study. There may be one more present this morning who's not a Christian, who's not a child of God. Would you come believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins? Would you acknowledge the faith that you have in Christ? Be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins. If you're subject in any way, would you come while together we stand while we sing?